Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where we invite historians to get angry with history and put right what we get wrong. The podcast that is a small step for history, but a giant leap for the truth. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my wingman and co-pilot, Kyle Glover. Hello! And this week, dear ragers, we are launching to infinity and beyond. And to guide us on this journey, we are joined by a historian, presenter and all-round showman. You have seen him as 50% of the history tellers at many festivals. And those of a certain age will remember him as Ernest Clough, History Bluff, from Brainiac History Abuse. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Stephen Abs Wisdom. Stephen, welcome to History Rage. Good evening, gentlemen. (laughs) Thank you very much indeed. You are welcome, sir. Feeling angry? Uh, Well, do you know what? I'm in a most beautiful woodland driving back from an event I've been attending, um, and I'm just so chill at the moment. But it's early days. It could all change. We'll do something about that. Don't worry. (laughs) I have seen you... On this particular subject at Chog Valley, and you can get wound up very, very quickly. So I'm, it, I'm hoping it, it, for it. Uh, just, it is close to my heart, and um, yes, yeah. I, I can get irritated, to say the least. So we've been friends for a while now. We've shared many, many events. I think I first kind of ran into you at Rufford Abbey. Yeah, um, absolutely. Watching Mr. Punch versus Adolf Hitler, of all things. Of course. Um, and bear in mind, you still, you still need to do Mr. Punch versus Julius Caesar. <laughs> yes. Yes, that would be very good. But I digress. <laughs> Could you tell our baying mob of history ragers out there a bit about your background and how you got started, how history tellers came about, how you ended up where you are? Yeah, well, okay. Um, so I, I come from an art background. So I went to art college in Yorkshire in the 1980s. Um, and I had absolutely no interest whatsoever in history. And then in 1987, <laughs> my mother bought the TV Times rather than the Radio Times. Mum bought the TV Times. And, and, and your, uh, your rages of a certain age will remember that the, the Radio Times in the 80s was in black and white, uh, with the pictures in black and white. <laughs> and the TV and Times... And just covered the BBC. Yeah, and just covered the BBC. And the TV Times was in colour. And it was about mm. 1987, and uh, Mum couldn't get the Radio Times. Uh, and she went through the... Uh, she gave me the, the TV Times. And I turned to Saturday, and there was a picture of, uh, again, Rages will remember, Michael Prade in Robin of Sherwood. And it was yes. uh, a picture of Michael Prade sword fighting with Oliver Tobias in uh, Series 2 of Robin of Sherwood. And I remember thinking, that looks good. I'll watch that. And I, coming from an art background, really enjoying art, I was just about mm-hmm. to go to my first art college. And I kind of looked at this series and it was Robin Hood that you'd never seen before. It, was, it wasn't Technicolor. It wasn't bright pavilions and things like that. This time it was filthy villages with chickens running around and smoke drifting everywhere. And I thought, mm-hmm. I love that. That's what I like. And it coincided with my dad taking me to the first ever Essex History Festival at Headingham in Essex. And there were the White Company were there and all these reenactment groups. And I remember thinking, this is the world I want to exist in. I want to exist in armor and mail shirts and swords and smoke and people eating over open fires. 
and I went to a yeah. couple of events. I went to art college. I got involved with English Civil War reenactment. And then bit by bit by bit, I fell in with the world of reenactment. And then our good friend, our mutual friend, Howard Giles, who was running at the time the English Heritage Special Events Unit, came up and said, I need somebody to come and do an event for me at this castle. And I went, oh, I'm not sure I can. And he went, I'll give you 300 <laughs> quid. And I went, I can do that. <laughs> So at that point, yeah. I then oh, became... build the castle for 300 quid. <laughs> and, and at that point, I then became a professional heritage performer. And then my interest in history, obviously, when people are paying you, you have to get it right. You can't wing it like mm. other subject of rage. So many reenactors do. And you have to get it right. So I started looking into the history and bit by bit by bit, I got noted by tv companies and other historians and eventually fell in with the chalk valley history festival where history tellers was born with my good colleague alex burnham 50 percent thereof he being the other 50 percent and we just got together and we started doing these really nicely polished nicely crafted history performances a bit sub horrible histories we take a true story and we turn that mm -hmm. story into a short performance each about half an hour long and you know the rest is forgive the pun history yes indeed indeed well i mean if guys out there if you've not experienced the history tellers before do so because you can wander in on absolutely any of the shows that these two guys perform and you will just sit down and just love it the uh, and it covers, you know, pretty much everything from history of armor right through to the Saint Nazaire raid and race yeah, cars so and that, just that's what we, wanna... that, That's what we always say. We just love these stories. They're just great stories because let's face it, guys, history is is just great stories, and we just want to go in there and just tell those amazing stories uh, and just put a little bit of flesh on the bones that you might just read like a little subtext story in in the in a, the margin of some of some, uh, y y you know, uh, history book. And then you're going, mm. oh, I wonder what that story's about. Well, we are the people who will make that live. Well, going from fascinating but true stories then, making a leap over to really quite far-fetched and tall tales then. We'll get into <laughs> what History Rage is about. So, Absolutely. Uh, I know you're itching to do this one. So, Abs, would you please tell everybody out there the one thing you wish people would just get over? Just shut up going on about how the moon landings were faked. For God's Get sake. It. Absolutely, seriously. Just shut up. Because <laughs> nobody, nobody who has got any sense at all stands up and says, oh yeah, that's definitely true. The moon landings were faked. You just make yourself sound stupid. And not only that, the, the overwhelming evidence points towards it being true. So to be quite honest, you bunch of burks, just stop <laughs> making yourself feel important but, and, and thinking that you've got an angle because you haven't. Yeah. yeah, I'm, you know, I'm not one for saying that, you know, conspiracies uh, don't, don't exist. But if you're going to come and tell me that, you know, the, that the government is going to cover up something that momentous. Yeah. I work in local government. They can barely get what they're supposed to do right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, somebody said, I was talking to one of my colleagues I've just been performing with today and they said, 
the only people who, or the, or the best equipped people, that's a better way to say it, the best equipped people who, who could rip a hole in any moon landing conspiracy are actually project managers because they know just how bad it is to be able to keep a project you know, secret. Um, and <laughs> yeah. when they're trying to get things nailed down and hidden up. So for goodness sake, just years after the event, you know, 50 odd years after the first moon landings, let's just stop this. Let's just, <laughs> let's just park it now. And you know what? In two days time, in two days time, God willing, the SLS, the Artemis project, the, 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 the follow up to Apollo launches to the moon in two days' time. The biggest rocket that, uh, from time of recording, that the biggest rocket that will ever go since the Saturn V flew to the moon. And people will still say, no, I don't believe it. Because <laughs> they just want to sound important. And, and, you know, unfortunately, this has gone into everything else from Pizzagate to Hillary's emails to everything else. And I'm just getting sick of it because what it's done, it just and the internet has played into this. It just makes people feel important. And you know what? You know what, you people? I'm sorry to break it to you, but you're not important. I'm sorry. There is no participation prize in life. You just If you stand up and go, I'm important because I think they didn't invent pop rivets in 1968. And I have had this argument with a clown on YouTube. <laughs> And he was sitting there basically saying, no, there is no surveyor craft. That's a two missions in 1968 that landed on the moon to take soil samples. There is no surveyor mission on the moon because that's a pop rivet in that photograph. And they weren't invented. And I wrote to him and went, well, you're you're I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. But your argument is that the word pop rivet had not been patented. But I can show you engineers' manuals from the 1930s where pop rivets, or what we call pop rivets, are still in existence. But this clown was sitting there. And I just want all these people to stop. And tonight, ladies and gentlemen, I will tell you to stop. And if you want me to <laughs> rage about it, I'm more than happy. But yep, at the moment, found it. I'm quite calm. And who'd have thought rivet counters could become even bigger wankers? Oh, yeah, completely, completely. <laughs> basically, basically, this guy had seen a photograph of what we think a pop rivet was, and it's holding on a sign on the Surveyor 1 and 2 spacecraft that are on the, uh, on the moon. Unmanned probes, and he's going, oh, look, pop rivets weren't invented, you know, because I've seen the patent for the word pop rivet. And I'm going, it's just a brand name. Blind rivets were invented, you absolute clown. And he still argued and said, no, look, the word pop rivet. It's a word. It's a muck. Got me raging. Yeah, I've, that would you, you would. I've got to pace myself. I've got to pace myself. <laughs> Yeah, anyway, so basically, the long and the short of it is, it is people who want to feel important, and actually, you know what? They are not. They are just looking for reasons to sound clever. So what are the some of the more kind of out there kind of crazy conspiracy theories? <laughs> Okay. They're, they're out there. And the debunking of them as well. Okay. So, okay. You know, let's, okay. let's go through so, top, to say top three <laughs> of the classics. Okay. Yeah. We'll be here all night. So top okay. Three. All right. So basically, let's, if, as this is a history podcast, let's look into the history of 
the moon landing conspiracy. And a lot of it goes back to a journalist who worked for a place called Rocketdyne um, in America. He was involved in the space program. It was a journalist called Bill Kaising. And Bill Kaising, mm. he's like the, the granddaddy of trying to feel important. When, when Armstrong and Aldrin land on the moon in 1969 on Apollo 11, Kaising came up and just went, well, look, there's loads wrong with this. And he wrote a book called something like, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something like the $30 billion swindle, how America never landed on the moon. And this was his big take on why the moon landings were faked. So Keisling, and he still is out there, or he was until his death at least, I think. But basically, Keisling said, the flag is sticking up and standing out. That is one of the things that he, he picked up on. And he said, mm. there is no wind on the moon to blow the flag out. So why is it standing out? Now, even a child can <laughs> look up why the flag is standing out. Basically, shock horror. Who would have thought NASA engineers knew there was no wind or atmosphere on the moon? And they knew that old glory... It's the sort of thing they might spot, isn't it? They might pick up on that. You know, you never know. So what they basically did was to say, how cool would the flag look if it was hanging down, flaccid down the pole? It's going to look awful. Why don't we, on the five foot by three foot flag made by the Annan Company of America, we know all this detail. Why don't we pocket the top of the flag and put a five foot metal rod across it? Now, we know where the flag was stored on the lunar lander. We know what make the flag was. We know how the flag was put up in several sections. And when you see on the original footage of Armstrong and Aldrin screwing it into the lunar soil, we know why the flag is then moving after they stand away. Because no atmosphere means that as they twist the pole to push it into the lunar surface with no atmosphere, you don't get atmospheric damping, which you would get on any uh, object like that on Earth, where the drag of the particles of air around it would stop it, the, the, the flowing motion. And as a mm. result, it continues to look like it's blowing in the wind because it's just waiting for all the kinetic energy to flow out of it as they have been twisting it. It's obvious. But to Bill Keisling, no, that is evidence of a fake because the flag is standing up. And he goes on. He goes on. He says, look at this rock. It's got the letter C on it. And this is true. You look at one photograph of one rock and you can see a very slight shape of a letter C. Mm. And he says, clearly this rock has come from a prop store and is marked with a letter C. And the C is where it's been catalogued and stored on a shelf. And someone has gone along going, yeah, I'll have all the rocks from A to F. And this one is rock number C. And once again, NASA haven't spotted when they photographed the rock that it has a letter C on it. And you think, Bill, shut up. It's clearly just a mark on the rock. Just as people at the moment are scouring over the photographs taken by Curiosity and Perseverance rover on Mars and saying, look at these bones of a fossil I can see. No, you're just seeing faces in the clouds. You're seeing, you're just seeing um, shapes. And here you think you see the letter C. I mean, I could go on. They are 
insane. And the people who follow it are insane. And, and it just, you know, I have had it in a lecture at the Chalk Valley History Festival. I showed the famous picture of Buzz Aldrin standing on the surface of the moon in 1969 with Neil Armstrong taking the photograph reflected in his visor. And a man came up to me at the end of the lecture and he said, I'm not disputing that they went to the moon. It's just that photograph is faked. I said, what? Well, that's even more bizarre. Sorry, why is it faked? And he said... That one's clearly taken in a studio. And I said, why would they go to the moon and then fake one photograph in a studio? And he said, yes, but look at the way he's standing in a pool of light. And I said, you do realize that the horizon's only a small distance away because the moon is so small. That photograph is taken in lunar dawn with the sun almost immediately behind and very slightly to the left of Aldrin. And as a result, the sun being very low on the horizon is, is, is backlighting all the rocks to the horizon. So naturally, as the horizon falls away, all those little rocks in shadow are getting nearer and nearer and nearer to create darkness on the horizon. He no. said, no, <laughs> but that's <laughs> what is happening. No, you're wrong. I said, that's what's happening. And I said, it's a lunar, it's lunar dawn, so they don't overheat because the moon is tremendously hot. It's got the greatest thermal range of anybody in our solar system. And he said, no, no, that's been taken in a studio by a lighting rig. I can't, I'm telling you the reason why. And he still argued with me. And I just thought I had to vacate that lecture theater because another lecture was coming in. But instead I said, do you know what, mate, let's go and have this over in the bar, but I will destroy you. Let's go and finish this conversation over there. I mean, you know, Bill Keisling is the granddaddy of all these conspiracy theories, but I have an amazing one for you. So mm. if I may, let me, let me give you the Stanley Kubrick faking the moon landing story. Mm -hmm. Now, if that's all right with you, gentlemen, I yep, will start. Fire away. Okay. So a few questions for you uh, of a historical nature. Between 1970 and 1980, Stanley Kubrick made which epic historical film? Oh, um, Barry Lyndon. Barry Lyndon is the right answer. Now, okay. amongst... Well done, Kyle. Very good, Kyle. Well done. For those of you who don't know, Barry Lyndon, beautifully made. And Barry Lyndon is famously and actually often misrepresented um, by people on the internet. Because Barry Lyndon uses, in all its interiors, it uses a lot of candles. And often, as a the historian of film as well, often it is said that Barry Lyndon's night scenes and interiors are lit entirely with candles. This is not true. But that is not the point. The point is that, that Kubrick, who made Barry Lyndon, he made it using a NASA deep space imaging lens married to a Panavision camera. Now, the reason he used this NASA deep space imaging lens that was specially adapted is because, yes, he was using a lot of candles and he wanted to shoot film, not video, of course, shoot film, mm -hmm. but he wanted to get as much light into the lens as he could. So he went to NASA and he said, I would like your big lens or I'd like a big lens. So NASA passed over the big lens to him. Now, this is where it gets a bit mad. What film had been made in 1968 by Stanley Kubrick that featured incredibly realistic, for the time, moonscapes? 2001. 
2001. Now, my father worked on 2001, so I have a vested interest mm. in this story. Yeah, my father made the Orion shuttle for 2001 at the beginning of the docking sequence. He was a model maker, professional mm. film model maker. And uh, when we were young, we had a few bits and bobs from 2001, which we, of course, threw away. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> so Kubrick, Kubrick's done these incredibly realistic moonscapes. And the conspiracists say, oh, yeah, Stanley Kubrick made the moon landings, didn't he? Yeah, of course he did. And he was paid some years later by NASA letting him use a deep space imaging lens. Yeah. Now That's a stretch by anyone's it, voice, oh, 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 Paul, Paul, it oh, gets better. Yeah. You're not even oh, halfway yeah. into this one yet. <laughs> yeah, no. So, you know, this is to suggest that a multi-billion dollar organisation, the only way it can make transactions is by a barter system. You know, it can, you know it, they can't go, oh, of course you can buy a lens office, you know, but you'll have to come and clean our car for the next week, you know, for his, you know, that, it is to suggest that Kubrick, because he's so good at imaging the moon landings in 2001, they come up to him and go, um, do you want to fake the moon landings for us? And he's going, yeah, sure, I'll do that for you. But in a few years time, I want to shoot an 18th century drama and I will need your deep space imaging lens. So have we got a deal? And they've gone, yes, yeah, sure, Stanley. <laughs> that's the deal. Okay. So Kubrick shoots the moon landings. All of them. Um, because, ladies and gents, what you might not realize is that Armstrong and Aldrin are only uh, two of the 12 men who walked on the moon. The last mission to walk on the moon, Apollo 17, uh, Harrison Schmidt and uh, Gene Cernan walked on the moon in 1972. So uh, Apollo 17 is all in full color. Uh, presumably that wasn't Stanley Kubrick or whatever. Who knows? No one's looked into their daft story enough. But Stanley Kubrick, he feels guilty about lying to the American people. And he doesn't want to sit out and go, gee, American people, I'm so sorry for what I did. So I'm just going to tell you because, of course, they'll kill him. They will just snuff him out. Naturally. So, naturally, of course they would. So instead, he makes a film and leaves a paper trail of visual clues in the film to tell people okay. that he faked the moon landings. And that film, ladies and gentlemen, is The Shining. Of course. Okay. <laughs> of course. So. Here we go. I'm prepare. sorry, I've gone so far out of left field now. I'm lost. <laughs> you prepare to enter the rabbit hole. Yeah. Because this one goes deep. Okay. Now, I will hold up my hand here and say, much as I like Stanley Kubrick's work, I've not seen The Shining. But to be honest, if, you're, if your listeners haven't, you don't need to. Suffice to say, Stanley Kubrick makes The Shining between 1979 and 1980. It's released in 1980. So, The Shining, he creates the clues to let you know why the moon landings were faked. Here we go. Now, this is all responsible. The man who uh, is responsible for this is, uh, is basically on the web. And he, um, he's a man called Jay Weidner. And on his own page, which is called Secrets of the Shining, or how faking the moon landing nearly cost Stanley Kubrick his marriage and his life. It's quite a big title. I'm sure you will agree. Okay. It's, it's, it's a PhD thesis, is that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Okay, now Steve, uh, Stephen King wrote the original novel for The Shining, and in the original mm. novel, it's a hotel, and one of the rooms in the hotel, it's a dilapidated hotel, and one of the rooms in the hotel is the centre of this evil, maleficent present. Present. That is room in the book. That is room number two one seven. Stanley Kubrick in The Shining changes the number of the haunted room to room number. 237. Now, gentlemen, oh, how far away is the moon? Yes. 237,000 miles. It's obvious when you look at it like that, isn't it? Oh, it gets, it gets worse. It gets worse. So, it's 237,000 miles away. So, basically, why has he changed it? Well, because obviously he is trying to leave people clues. So, the Overlook Hotel... It is, that is basically this dilapidated hotel. That is an, uh, a representation of America in 1969. So America is collapsing and it has to be looked after. So when um, in the film we see it's a, it's a hotel, it, there is a, a heavy winter. The winter is representative mm-hmm. of the Cold War. All right. So the snow that covers the hotel is the Cold War. The Cold War that forces Kennedy to make the ridiculous promise that we will go to the moon. So when Kennedy made his speech at Rice University and he said, we will go to the moon, we will go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So when he makes that promise, that is basically him promising to rescue the hotel. Now, in The Shining, Jack Nicholson, the caretaker, is there to rescue the hotel. It is his job to maintain the building. The building is, of course, America. And and this is crumbling. It is crumbling. So, Kubrick, he is the Jack Nicholson character. He has come in to rescue America. And he's admitting to this in the film. Now, the man who hires Nicholson, this man who in the film sits there and hires him to come and look after the hotel, he is the establishment. You see, he's sitting there with his eagle behind his back. What was the name of the lunar module on Apollo 11? It was the eagle. Okay, so the uh, the Jack Nicholson character is writing a manuscript. He's writing a novel, I think, in the film. And all he writes in his manuscript, we see as the film goes on, All he writes are the words, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Now, all work, A-L-L. A, Apollo, L-L, 11, you see. It's Apollo 11. So, yeah, no, completely. I know, I know. Um, It goes on. Because Danny is the caretaker's son. Now, what's one of the most famous scenes in The Shining, if you've seen the film? What's the... Uh, what's Red rum. Yeah, red rum, indeed. Now, Danny, the little boy, is riding his big wheel through the corridors of the dilapidated hotel. And he sees the twins. Come and play with us, Danny. Come and play with us, Danny. So the twins... What is the uh, astrological name of the twins? Oh, dear. Gemini. Gemini. What was the mission before Apollo called, gentlemen? It, Gemini. It was the Gemini. So the American uh, projects that flew into space, you had Mercury that uh, put the first man in orbit. Uh, you had the Gemini, which was their ability to dock in space. And Gemini was the feeder mission for Apollo. So there we have the two twins, the Gemini twins. However, 
We're leaving the best till last. Because when Danny gets off his big wheel, he stands up and it is revealed as he stands up that he is wearing a space rocket shirt. And as he stands up into frame, the space rocket is launched across the picture. And he stands and we see the rocket launch. And Danny goes to the door 237. The space rocket travels to the moon. 237,000 miles. So, gentlemen, I put it to you that the person who thought of this just needs to go out more and meet girls. <laughs> because, I mean, I, for goodness Can't sake, <laughs> just I have, I have, where, does, where does the scary ghost lady come into this? Now, and where does the butler? <laughs> yeah, and also, Stephen King wrote The Shining I believe before the moon landings. So how did all of that then get, I mean, it's, yeah. Where does the scary ghost lady come in? Where does any of the other things, someone said to me today, is there, there, again, I haven't seen the film. There's a ball scene. He thinks with a man with a wolf's head on, he was remembering. And again, I can't comment, but at some point in this story, somebody has sat there and just worked all that out watching it. And you sit there and you think for goodness sake, person, just stop. Just go out and look at a bird flying. Just just stop. Peel that newspaper off your windows where you've covered it up because you're terrified of the Illuminati coming and looking into your house. Just go outside and look at some butterflies or smell a tree or even just go for a walk around the block and look at the clouds. Stop being such an absolute knob. I would say, and just to to argue that point as well, I mean, if you're saying that we're going to make a 1980 film that points out that the moon landing was fake and you're going to put all this imagery into what is effectively a mystery suspense horror film. Three years earlier, there's Capricorn Absolutely. 1. Absolutely. Pretty much just straight, Completely. Come up, straight on comes out Absolutely. with it. Absolutely. And, and Capricorn 1, which I... I re- I recently watched Capricorn one absolutely plays beautifully into the hands of people who want to say it's faked. Now, before Capricorn one, there are a few people who said, well, they could tell us anything, couldn't they? But the most important fact about the whole moon landings is that the Russians were trying to get to the moon as well. The Russians had a rocket called the N1. They never admitted to this until the fall of the Soviet Union. They have a lander called the LK-1 that bolted onto the front of a Soyuz. They had an astronaut already penned in to be the first man to walk on the moon. It was cosmonaut Alexei Leonov, who died recently. Alexei Leonov was the first man to walk in space. Uh, he was part of a, a, a mission uh, that, that successfully walked in space. The Americans were furious. But the Russians, because of the terrible bureaucratic way that they operated their their, uh, rocket program, they never were able to build a rocket as successful as the Saturn V launcher that Werner von Braun, the the ex-Nazi scientist, had had a hand in developing for the Americans. And as a result, the, the Russians monitored Apollo 11 down to the surface and said, well done. And, and, and again, I say, you know, people say, oh, who was the first man on the moon? And you go, Neil Armstrong. And you say, who was the second man on the moon? And you say, Buzz Aldrin. And they say, yeah, but I bet no one knows who the third man on the moon was. And I go, Pete Conrad. 
And who, all right, who's the fourth man on the moon? Alan Bean. Because they go on Apollo 11, Apollo 12, Apollo 13 never gets there. They go on Apollo 14, 15, 16 and 17. And, uh, you know, and, and you, you look at the achievements of these people and you look at the photographs that NASA have, have produced and you look at the detail and you look at the moon rock samples and it is impossible to fake that. It is impossible to fake moon rock. It is impossible to fake lunar soil. It is impossible to fake the chemical signature of the lunar soil. At which point, and I have had this argument a thousand times, people say, oh yeah, well what about the so-called moon rock that was in a Dutch museum and it turned out to be petrified wood? You know, I want to swear and use Anglo-Saxon expletives here because... What basically happened was a, and I have to check the details on this, but yes, a piece of what was claimed to be moon rock turned out to be petrified wood. And people say, oh, that was given by NASA to the Dutch government. No, it was given to a member of the American uh, diplomatic service to another Dutch Mm. diplomat. And it was given by two elderly gentlemen, one who gave it. And at some point down the line, somebody thought they had moon rock and they gave it to a Dutch museum saying, this is a piece of moon rock I was given by a friend of mine who was a diplomat. Neil Armstrong never gave it. Buzz Aldrin never gave it. NASA never gave it. A rather confused elderly diplomat from America gave it to a rather confused elderly diplomat from Holland. And somewhere down the line, that Dutch diplomat said it was moon rock. At no point does that involve a conspiracy of Neil Armstrong saying, I've got some moon rock here. Idiots. I'm sorry, but As idiots. You, uh, you mentioned where there where you bring bring the Russians in as well. I mean, it's, uh, we we had sort of similar conversation uh, with one of our previous guests, uh, David O'Keefe, when he was talking about the EP and how important that is. And you go, well, these are all the resources that in the middle of the Battle of the Atlantic that they went ahead with. And I think it kind of feeds into that because you've you've got if the Russians are trying to do this as well, and you've got you know six successful moon missions there if any of these are not actually there the russians are going to say something yeah because the russians are monitoring all of this the russians uh, during the apollo launches had a submarine and a trawler out in uh, you know off the coast of america and they were trying to block signals they were actually doing espionage if they knew this was all being done in a studio in arizona they wouldn't have bothered putting that ex- extreme difficulties and extreme expense that they would have been facing out there with the possibility of getting uh, you know torpedoed or hauled or arrested by the royal Na- uh, by the american navy so you're in a situation mm. where the overwhelming evidence points towards this happening And the chemical signature of the rock points towards this happening. There is a piece of moon rock in the space centre at Leicester. There is a piece of moon rock in the Science Museum. And scientists will look at this and say there is no way the chemical and the radioactive signature on this rock can be faked on Earth. So... I can only put it down to people just wanting to sound important. And it makes me angry because, unfortunately, what it then does is discredit all the really, really good people who did an amazing job. Yeah, so 
tell us about a few of those then a few of the you know achievements that we don't think about okay well i mean let's start then because we just look at we just look at oh landing on the moon that's amazing and it is but that's actually a whole cascade of amazing details isn't it i mean okay so let's look at armstrong let's look at neil armstrong himself he is flying above the lunar surface and he is absolutely cool as a cucumber and when you listen to the footage uh, or to the recording, because all the recording uh, was, you know, made as he was doing this, he is he is landing long. That is to say that the point at which they were going to land Apollo 11 is now well behind them because for various reasons, they are now not where they want to be. And he is going over a large crater. Now, if he lands in that large crater, he is never going to leave the surface. And it is 50-50 on whether he is going to come back anyway. Nixon had already recorded a uh, voiceover to basically say the men who landed on the moon will stay on the moon. Uh, so he's already recorded a, a, a message for the American people to say it's all a disaster. So Armstrong and Aldrin are flying, are manually flying, using its uh, its um, descent engine and its uh, reaction control thrusters. They are flying Eagle vertically now, so she's now flying sideways, but hovering, as in to say she's moving you know, from left to right. Um, they are flying over this big crater, and Armstrong selects a landing field. As he is doing this, he has got an alarm going off in the cockpit. And the alarm is clearly perturbing him. I wouldn't say freaking him out. I wouldn't say he's screaming back to Mission Control on Earth saying, what's going on? I need to know. Oh, my God, we're going to crash. I'm going to abort. He calmly is saying, can I have a status report on that alarm? So let's just take our hats off to Neil Armstrong for a start, who is calmly, calmly saying, do I need to abort? He is hundreds of thousands of miles from home with a very strong possibility he will never see his wife again and see Earth again. And he is sitting or standing in this spacecraft saying, can I have a status report on that alarm? And you can hear it going off in the background. And he is saying, how are we doing on that alarm? Very calmly, he manually lands the spacecraft. And then, after a small moment, he turns to uh, his colleague Aldrin. They look at each other. They pat each other on the back. And he says, Tranquility Base here, the Eagle has landed. At which point, Mission Control Capcom, the capsule commander, the man who's basically talking back to him from, uh, from Mission Control, says I mean, one of the most epic quotes of the 20th century. And he basically says, uh, we copy you, Eagle, on the ground. You've got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. What a great, great line. So let's just take our hats off to Neil Armstrong. Let's take our hats off to the guys back in Mission Control. But let's also take our hats off to the 400,000 people who basically turned up all the way through the 1960s at NASA and contributed tiny ideas and big ideas. Let's take our hats off to a very small man who, annoyingly, I've just forgotten his name, and that's a real problem because I would love to know it, but a man who basically said to Werner von Braun, the head of the rocket department, the man who was coming out with all these ideas, and this guy basically turned around and said... I'm really sorry, but your ideas won't work. And Werner von Braun was like, of course they will. I'm Werner von Braun. And this guy basically said, I'm really sorry, but you have to go for what is called 
a lunar docking manoeuvre. You have to do all of this landing on the moon by going into a lunar orbit and landing on the moon. You cannot do it by one big rocket flying directly to the moon. It's just not possible. Now, strangely enough, Elon Musk, um, he is planning to land Starship on the moon. So it will take off, it will fly to the uh, to the moon and it will land, the whole spacecraft will land on the moon. He will leave his booster back in Earth orbit and land it back on the uh, Earth like he does with his other SpaceX rockets. But his main spacecraft will land on the moon like something out of Forbidden Planet. But this wonderful gentleman, um, he basically said, look, I don't think it'll work. And when they made their final presentations of how they would land on the moon, Werner von Braun went with that man's ideas and said, no, you're absolutely right. We will go with your idea. We will take off. We will throw most of the rocket away and we will do all our docking manoeuvres and landing manoeuvres. We will instigate them in lunar orbit rather than trying to do it all in one go. So again, a little man standing standing up to the might of Werner von Braun. We've got to take, uh, take our hat off to him. But really, mm. I think the, the people I would really, really like to, um, to really sort of boost are the women who worked at NASA, particularly the women of colour, who, who, to be quite honest, were going against in a really, really difficult time for people of colour. They were, they were people who basically stood up and said, I'm going to be part of this, whether you like it or not. So let's look at people like Katherine Johnson. Now, Katherine Johnson was uh, basically a black lady who was a maths genius and she used geometry. She was extremely good at what they call being a human computer. So she was mm. an excellent, an expert at orbital mechanics. She could figure out how to insert a spacecraft into Earth orbit. She could work out how to bring a spacecraft back in the right place into, uh, into you know, by re-entry. And she was responsible for when John Glenn orbited the Earth in 1961. She was responsible for basically saying, right, I am going to check all the computing done by the mechanical computers and I'm going to check it with my own maths brain. And John Glenn actually asked for Kathleen Johnson to come and uh, and look at uh, the, uh, the you, know, you know the calculations and he said get the computer on it get the woman on it because she's going to be really really good and indeed she went off to to you know, to go to greater things um, and in a really really difficult time she stood up you know against the the, the racial prejudice and against the uh, sexual prejudice of being a woman in a very very male environment you've got to take your hat off to her you've really got to take your hat off yeah. to her you know so I, I think she's absolutely brilliant. And, um, you know, she, she also helped Apollo 13 calculate its re-entry manoeuvre when it was, uh, you know, crippled and in space. You know, how can you not look at somebody like that and say what an incredible person she is? You know, and she wasn't the only one. She was not the only one. You know, there was a woman called Joanne Harding Morgan. Uh, she was actually in the firing room when Apollo 11 took off. And she was specifically sought out and, and sought, you know, and, and uh, targeted because she was NASA's first female engineer. And they headhunted her to be the only woman in the firing room when Apollo took off. And she was responsible for, you know, a lot of the uh, communications control, the guidance computers, you know, another incredible lady. And in a, as I say, in an age where these people were just really frowned on, she she stood up for all women. And you've got to take your hat off to that. Yeah. You know, you really have. Yeah, you've got to. Yeah, completely, completely. 
So in general, to sort of, you know, and is it any wonder I get so mad with these people because they're not just trying to rail on against the American government. They're they're railing on against these individuals who who achieved so much. And, and what makes me so mad is you've got people like Jean Wilson, who at, at 19, she sewed the gloves of Neil Armstrong's spacesuit by hand. And these people lived in absolute fear that they left a pin in the spacesuit. All the spacesuits got x-rayed every time they had worked on them, just to make sure in the many, many layers of material in them that they hadn't left pins in them. And these young women, who were all absolutely expert hand sewers, were recruited to hand sew all those spacesuits that were used on the moon. So you're, you're denying their incredible input into an epic part of human history. And, and if that doesn't make you mad, it, it bloody well should do. Because, <laughs> because these people are... They're, they're just such a big part of a big story of human endeavour. And, and, and why shouldn't we get angry with people who just say, yeah, that never happened? I mean, it makes me annoyed, as you can hear. It makes me angry. And, and, and I hope it makes your listeners angry, too. I hope so as well. OK, so this is probably too big a question. And we've already kind of touched on the reasons why throughout this episode. But um, why? even in the face of such definitive proof, does this absolute nonsense still occupy reams and reams of writing and endless gigabytes of internet information to this day? Well, I think you've used it. It's the I word. It's the internet. You know, and the internet, you know, I think is, a, is an incredible thing, but it's also a massively destructive tool. Look at the, the January the 6th riots in, um, in, in, in America. That was mostly arranged on the internet. Look at the amount of hate we have on the internet. Look at the amount of misinformation we have on the internet. And it used to be that you could go and go to the pub on a Saturday night and the loon would be sitting in the corner and he'd be sitting there going, yeah, of course, it's the government, isn't it? And they, what they do is they're trying to put like, like things in your, in your water to make you mad. You go, yeah, cool. And you go off and play a game of pool and you just abandon the idiot in the corner. Now the idiot in the corner sits on his computer with 10,000 other idiots in the corner and they all start getting together and talking about these, uh, reasons and it starts becoming more commonplace. I mean, a few years ago, I met a previously sensible young woman who absolutely believed in the stuff that QAnon were coming out with. She was English. She wasn't American. She was saying, oh, no, it's all true. And she was she was coming out with stuff that that, you know, a, a well-known Internet uh, buying company where a mail order company were were basically involved in in a person smuggling ring and i said this is all nonsense you realize this don't you and she said i've read it on the internet it's all true so kyle paul i think it's the i word i think it's the internet there are so many people now who as i touched on at the beginning of this rage i said that there were people who wanted to feel important i don't know why people have felt in some way emasculated that they want to they want to feel part of something bigger and I don't know whether they just sit at home in their miserable little lives and want to be part of a world where where 
other people give them some credit and they have some rank, they achieve some status. And if the only way they can achieve some status is being the person that knows more than you do, well, I find that incredibly sad because what a waste of the organ that is the human brain, really. You've got all of that ability to do great things and use your human brain for creativity. And all you can use it for is misinformation. And to be honest, a crock of old shit. And and that really, really annoys me. Well, thank you very much, Abs. Thank you very much, because I've I've really enjoyed ripping this myth apart and tearing up a few tinfoil hats along the way as well. So so we're we're going to call call mission complete there thank you very very much for coming thank you very much indeed uh tranquility base out (laughs) do you feel better yeah yeah completely i mean i do this on the internet to individual idiots on youtube every night virtually and in the end i've just given up because what is the point you are pushing against the the this tide of idiocy but but you still have to be out there you still have to fight the corner for right and for 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 the truth and yeah okay i was one and a half when men landed on the moon for the first time but i'm not one and a half now and i can look at the overwhelming evidence and say i've looked at that i've made a rational decision based on the evidence i've seen and you're all morons well thank you very much Well, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to know more, then uh, keep an eye on the history tellers as they tour the country with their massive range of historical presentations. And you can see abs at both Chalk Valley History Festival, uh, We Have Ways Fest and Chelsea History Festival as well. And you can follow the history tellers on Twitter at hist underscore tell. Um, And you definitely should. But once again, abs, thank you very much for coming on and bringing an astronomical rage. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, I do hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And if you subscribe to us on Patreon, you're really helping us meet the cost of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, the invite to put questions to future guests and the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash History Rage. But until next week, thanks very much for listening. Stay angry. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.